Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open up to the book of John, that'll probably be a big repeat for most of the year. We'll be in John. Uh, But uh, we're still in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, as Brian read earlier. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you, give you a little bit of insight into um, the younger Joel and Danielle. She doesn't know I'm going to say this. I could be in trouble. No, when, when Danielle and I were de- dating back in the, we started dating in the late 80s and, of course, got married in the mid-90s, we, at one point in time, took a Myers-Briggs personality test. And it was very interesting being a dating couple trying to figure out how to work together, how to take what God has created uniquely in Danielle and what God has created uniquely in me and make those work together. And, and it became readily apparent that we are not the same person. And the Myers-Briggs chart showed us that. And, and it, what, what happened was when we took the Myers-Briggs, you know, there's kind of a baseline. And Myers-Briggs has four letters. And I'm not going to go through all that. But basically, you would chart it, how strong you were in one of these four categories. And at the end, you would get, like I got, ISFJ, introverted, sensing, feeling, judging. I think I got that right. Danielle was the exact opposite, extroverted, intuition, INFP, TP, something like that. And the reason I forgot, so we were opposite ends of the spectrum. And so now you have this highly introverted person and this highly extroverted person, this highly intuitive person, this highly perceiving person, this highly feeling person, this highly thinking person, this highly judging. So you have all these things. Now you're trying to make that work in a marriage. And what's been cool over the 27 years that we've been married is that God has taken our extremes and they've, he's tempered them out. So now I think if we were to take the test again, we would end up being somewhere in the middle. Not that we become so much like each other that one of us doesn't matter. That's not the case. We're still very different. We still think very differently. But by abiding, by continuing, by remaining with one another, we've learned to adapt and appreciate each other's strengths and weaknesses. We've learned to work together. And that's really one of the things that I think Jesus is getting at today as he is talking with his disciples. You see, as we spend time with people, we begin to take on things that they enjoy. We begin to take on things that they do. When I was a freshman in high school, I went to a brand new school. All my friends had sambas. So guess what I had to buy? Sambas. I had to wear I didn't even like soccer. It took me a whole year before I joined the soccer team, but I had to get some sambas. You know, everybody back then, I'm dating myself, was pegging their pants. You remember that? Everybody who's like in their mid-40s or early 50s, you know what I mean. You were rolling up your pants and making your shoes look, your ankles look tiny. And, um, everybody, because as we abide with one another, we kind of take on those characteristics and qualities. And so Jesus, as he's talking with a group of new believers, as he's talking with people at the Feast of Tabernacles, he's trying to help them understand, you need to be like me. And so he makes this challenge. So if you have your Bibles and want to look in John chapter 8, we're going to begin around verse 31. 
Because Jesus essentially says, and this is where your notes pick up, Jesus essentially says that, that abiding in Jesus' word marks a true disciple. One of the marks of a true disciple is that they would abide in Jesus' word. He says this in John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And this comes on the heels. If you remember the conversation we had last week, we've been talking for several weeks now that Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. And there are several people who, as, even as there's controversy going on, Jesus is telling them, hey, I'm the light of the world. Hey, I'm the, the living water. Come and drink. Come and see. Let me reveal. Help. And I am essentially the Messiah. I am the anointed one. And in spite of all the controversy that surrounded that, we learned in just the previous verse John 8, 30, that as he was saying many, these things, many believed in him. Some didn't, many didn't, but many did believe in him. So Jesus seemed to turn to these people, these new believers, and they gave them, gave them some insight into what it truly means to be a disciple. And his charge for the people is to abide in his word, but what does that mean, to abide? I mean, that's not really language we use very much today. And essentially, it can be translated to mean continue or remain. And part of the connotation is not only remaining, but also obeying. That means if I'm going to hang out in Jesus' word, if I'm going to listen to what he says, I better do what he says. A, a guy I listened to a long time ago used to say, to know and not to do is not to know. If I'm going to express knowledge in something, I better do something with the knowledge that I have. Otherwise, I'm really proving that I don't know what I say I know. In John 15, 11 to, 1 to 11, Jesus was with his disciples, the 12, the night before he was crucified. And he essentially told them something very similar. And let's read the first verses of John 15, 1 to 5. He says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they produce even more. You, already have, been, you have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, think about that idea of, of, a, of a vine and the way that it abides or remains in the branch. In order to have health and life, it must allow the nutrients that the branch, that the trunk is pulling up from the ground to be able to feed it. They have to remain together. If we cut a vine off of a branch, it's not going to last very long. But the vine must also be obedient and take on the characteristics of the vine. The, the branch must take on the characteristics of the vine. And it's important that we remain connected to the Word of God. And I think we do this in a variety of ways. One is in personal Bible study or personal Bible reading. I hope that you have that habit in your life because as we take in the Word of God, we are counteracting all of those other influences that we hear on the radio, that we watch on TV, that we listen on podcasts. 
as we take in, because there are so many things vying for our attention, competing for our hearts and our minds. And it's only by abiding in Jesus' teaching, and that is in, part of it is in personal Bible study. But I think it also happens in, in family devotions as we spend time together as a family reading, and this is something I wish I did better spent time reading and considering the word of God together. It was so interesting. One of uh, Danielle's cousins posted on Facebook the other day. Actually, I think it was just yesterday. He was reading through the Old Testament with his son, who's about five years old. And as they're getting to um, Exodus chapter 19 and 20, if you remember, that's when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and he told them, you know, beware, you know, don't come up on the mountain. And basically the people of God said to Moses, you talk to God for us. We are afraid of God. And so the dad said to his son, why are they afraid of God? And they went back and forth a little bit. And, you know, the son, the five-year-old, ultimately said it's because they don't know him. Out of the mouth of babes. Because they don't truly know him. But imagine what would have happened if that father hadn't been taking time in family devotions to read, to talk, and to invest in his son in that way, to instill the word of God in his son's life. Now he gets a big, bigger picture, a better, clearer understanding of who God is. So we can be connected to God. We can remain in him in personal Bible study and family devotions and in, in group Bible study, in, in small groups or, or, or like the adult Bible study or our classes. Because in doing that together, I love getting to do that together because you're going to have a different perspective than I'm going to have. You're going to have a different take on what Scripture is saying than I do. But as we work together, we can sharpen one another. But then there's also this time together when we get to come and worship the same God, recognizing that you've experienced different things this week than I have, recognizing that together we are equal before the foot of the cross, and we are worshiping that same God, and we are hearing his word, seeking to be faithful to all he's called us to. And as we spend time reading and reflecting and applying the word of God, we abide and are hopefully transformed. And I think we can certainly supplement the word of God with good podcasts and books and devotionals and other biblical-oriented things, but I want to encourage us not to let our daily diet, our regular diet of spiritual food be someone else's opinion of God. We need to let the word of God speak into our lives. And it makes sense because we have to spend time with Jesus in order to be like Jesus. Danielle and I have to spend time together in order to take on, I can take on her strengths and she can take on mine and hopefully we'll counteract each other. We, we work together, but we have to do that being together. The same thing happens for us in our time with God. In order to be like Jesus, we must spend time with him. And that's essentially what being a disciple is, being a, a follower, listening and obeying. But as Jesus makes this comment to these new believers, he expands his comment because abiding in Jesus' word has some ramifications. It has some other things. We don't just become like Jesus. Abiding in Jesus' word, abiding in his teaching reveals truth. 
It reveals truth to us. Look at what he says in in 831 to 32. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know, the truth is a topic that has become very subjective in our society lately. In fact, Melody and I, as we were driving to Chicago on Friday, we were talking about some things and she, she used the phrase, my truth. I asked her, I said, Melody, what do you mean by that? It's not a whole lot. And I said, well, why didn't you just say my opinion, my preference, my truth? And our, but if you think about it, if you listen to what our culture is saying, our culture truly is saying that there's your truth and there's my truth and the two truths don't have to meet, but they can still be true truths. And I would contend that no, spending time with God is going to reveal that there is only his truth. And there is an element where we will experience things differently and that'll shape us and that'll do, and that doesn't change the fact that what I experience and what you experience impacts who we are. Those things happened to us. Those things we got to go through. But there's a sense in which truth requires a standard. Truth requires a standard. The Lexham Theological Word Book describes it this way. It says, truth refers to what is real, trustworthy, dependable, genuine, or valid. It carries the sense of real-world dependability and genuine disclosure, showing things as they really are. You know, we could spend all sorts of time really diving into that, really looking at truth from all of Scripture, but I want us to focus in on what Jesus is getting at here in this passage because I think the context helps us understand a couple of things that are very clear for us. Because if we are looking at all of truth throughout Scripture, we could be here until next Sunday and still not get all of what it's saying. But in his conversation with these so-called believers, as Jesus calls them out and he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, they respond with this. John 8, 33, we are offspring of Abraham. You have and have never been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you say we, you will become free? Now, I got to tell you, there's a couple problems with their statement. We have never been slaves to anyone. Because if you think through the history of the people of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt, and yet they would sing over and over about God's exodus, bringing them out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. So if they're talking about Jews throughout history, they were incorrect. They had been slaves before. Not only that, but when they were sent into exile by the Assyrians and and other people, Babylon, They were slaves in those other contexts. A, they were incorrect historically. But B, they were incorrect in the time in which they were living because most of these Jews at that time were not Roman citizens. They were living in Roman-occupied territories and did not enjoy the rights of citizenship. Some of you guys who have, who have lived here in the United States on, on guest visas, on student visas, you know what that's like. You, you live in this country, you get some of the freedoms and, and all these things, but you don't necessarily get all the rights. You don't get to have a say until you become a citizen. Well, if, if you don't, you're a citizen, all right. If you don't have a say, then in some sense you're a slave because someone else is telling you what you have to do. 
So they were not only wrong historically, but they were wrong in the moment. The bottom line is they missed the point of what Jesus was getting at. You see, in Jesus' comment about truth and freedom, he was not referring to political or even individualistic freedom. He was referring to spiritual freedom. Because, you see, as we abide with Jesus, we gain knowledge about the painful truth of our slavery to sin. He reveals to us the painful truth of our slavery to sin. Look at what he says in 34 to 38. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. The, the, the fact that we have to face is that sometimes the truth hurts. This is one painful truth. Our sin problem is a painful truth. You see, elsewhere in our study of Scripture, we've learned that that sin problem is not simply the things that we do in the flesh, but is something that we are born with. We are born with, we are born with a sin problem. But beyond simply having inherited sin, we have a willful sin problem. Not only are we corrupted because of, of our nature, but we're, we willfully decide to rebel against God. And Jesus clearly calls out these followers, and I think us by extension, as people who practice sin. And yet, think about this. Even the Apostle Paul, a guy whose life had been transformed in a miraculous way, he too wrestled with sin. He, he wrestled with getting rid of that in his life. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. And so now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Talk about a tongue twister. But he's speaking truth. I mean, how often have you and I been in that same boat? We want to do the right thing. We want to evangelize and witness the way we should, and yet we're lazy. I'm lazy. I'm introverted. I'm shy. I'm afraid that I'll offend somebody. Now I've committed a sin of omission. Or we could go into so many other areas. But I think the thing that Paul is saying is that he, like all of us, struggled with sin. But he also called sin, sin. He didn't rationalize it. He didn't justify it. He didn't excuse it. He let sin be sin. I have this problem. You see, as we spend time with Jesus and as we allow the Holy Spirit to have more and more reign in our lives, we will regularly have to face our own fallenness. Even, wow, we are eternally free from sin, from the consequences of sin. We still have, we live in these dirt bags, right? In these earth suits. 
And as we spend time in the Word and in fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ, we will be confronted with attitudes and habits, actions, and language that are sinful. And sure, it's been paid for by Jesus Christ, but we need one another to speak into our lives to say, hey, that might not be the best way to say that. With the middle schoolers, we were talking about some of the challenges Paul was urging Titus to, to share to the church that he was leading. And one of those things, for instance, was he urged them to be humble and gentle. Well, sometimes we want to speak truth and we just want to call it out. And maybe, maybe a little bit of humility, a little bit of gentleness could go a long ways in sharpening one another as iron sharpens iron. Abiding with Jesus reveals the painful truth of our slavery to sin, but it also reveals the sobering truth of our corrupted nature. Our corrupted nature. And these are very similar, but as Jesus and his, his, the people who are debating with him continue to discuss this, they bring about claims of a holy ancestry. They call out and say, hey, we are children of Abraham. In fact, interestingly, Abraham is the father not only of all Jews, but also of all Muslims. And so he, they're saying, hey, I've got this family heritage. We are ripe with God by virtue of who our, who our daddy is. And then they accuse Jesus of having a questionable or illegitimate birth and even call him a Samaritan which we don't understand that, but if we were to use the N-word to talk about African-Americans today, that would be roughly the equivalent of calling a good Jewish person a Samaritan. It would be derogatory and demeaning. But because, of their, because their conversation is going nowhere, Jesus calls them out of their true heritage. And this is where I think we need to recognize this in us. In verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and it is your will to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he, the devil, he speaks, when he speaks, when he lies, sorry, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. As painful as it is, think about how we naturally respond when accused. Right? We'll, we'll, we'll stand up and say, no, 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 don't, don't, don't paint me with that, even if it's true. Often our first response is to be defensive, maybe even lie or justify our actions. And then to retort. So abiding in Jesus' word marks us as a, as a true disciple, but it also reveals truth to us, painful and sobering truth. But there's one final thing that abiding that Jesus mentioned, that abiding with Jesus in Jesus' word does, and that is that it brings true freedom. Verse 32, he says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, when we think about the difference between freedom and bondage, we, we often look at physical, we may look at mental, we may look at emotional, political, or even contractual boundaries that, that limit our freedom. And yet we have to recognize that those, those are true, those are freedom, those are individualistic freedoms that we may have. 
But when it comes to considering freedom, we also often think of it very individualistically and personal, personally. What we may want to do is different from each other. In fact, we've often heard people share the phrase, you do you, as a way of expressing your personal take on individualistic freedom. And so when Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, what he's not saying is that now you're free to do whatever you want. I believe what he's saying is now you are free to live out of the consequences of your sin because you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, but you also are free to live as the person God created you to be. And let let me paint this picture with a train because I think we can learn something really good from a train. I, I don't know about you, but I don't go on trains very often. But, but let me ask you this question. When is a train most free? When it's on the tracks or off the tracks? A train is most free when it's on the tracks. You get a train off the tracks and it doesn't go anywhere. In fact, it's all over the news because we hear that the train now can't go where it was designed to go. And I think it's important that we recognize maybe in our society, we need some rails. We need some tracks to help us stay in line with what God has designed us to do. And I believe the word of God has the best rails for us. After all, they are God's rails. And so as we abide in God's word, we read his truth. And we realize, oh, God isn't trying to be some cosmic killjoy. It's not that he doesn't want us to enjoy the life that he's given to us. He wants us to flourish and thrive. So he set up boundaries. He sent up guardrails. He set up tracks so that we might live in him most fully. But while we often think of freedom in these other ways, think about individualistically and morally and all that. Jesus is in this context, I think he's talking more about that eternal spiritual freedom. Freedom from the eternal consequences of our sin because abiding with Jesus helps us to know that that truth but also brings us true freedom from the bondage of our sin because sin has a clear consequence. The wages, the consequence of sin is death. It's not simply physical death that all of us will encounter unless Jesus comes back first. But it's the eternal death, that eternal separation from God. And the, but what can bring us freedom from that bondage? It's not rationalization, making rational lies about our sin. It's not calling sin a a mistake or a preference. It's calling sin, sin. It's not self-actualization that frees us from that bondage, changing how we think or look at the world because in our very nature, we are corrupted. We can't change this level of thinking without having something from the outside impacting us. The only source of freedom from eternal consequence of our sin is the Son, and it's Jesus. And Jesus, in this passage, helps us to see two reasons why he can give us eternal freedom. And that is in his authority and his nature. Let's look at these very briefly. Because of of his authority as the Son, in, in verses 34 to 36, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son 
remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So as the Son in the house, Jesus has the authority of the Father. He gets, he's there to be able to say who's in and who's out, who can remain. He is forever a resident and a member of the household of God. And so, but think about this. There are some people who like to engage in Christianity as a religion. Let me, let me try a little bit of this. Let me try a little Christianity. Let me do this because this is what Christians do. And let me hope that that will appease God. It's us. I mean, that's what all religion is, us trying to appease God. And yet Jesus Steps in. So, so we, we kind of step into the house. We hang out for a while. We like how, it's, how the couch feels. We sit down and enjoy it. But ultimately, we can't reside there because we've not been welcomed by under the authority of the Father, under the authority of the Son. So what I think what Jesus is getting at by his authority, he's basically saying it's not you trying to appease the Son. It's the Son welcoming us in. It's the Son inviting us. It's initiated by Him. And when Jesus, through His death, burial, and resurrection, pays the price of our sin, when we receive His free gift of eternal life, that's when we are eternally free. He initiates. We respond. But there's, there's more. You see, His Forgiveness, his freedom changes our status. Just like for some of you guys, your passport got changed, your citizenship got changed, or you added another citizenship. We move from being stranger and alien to child of God. The Apostle Paul helps us understand this a bit more in, in Romans 8, 15 to 17. He said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer, suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And it's as though we now get this new citizenship, this new family, all because of Jesus' authority as the Son. So then our job is to learn to live in that. Our job is to learn to live what it's like to be in the family of God. But then the question becomes, what happens if we mess up? What happens if we screw up? Well, John, in his, one of his later letters, helps us see that. In, John, in 1 John 2, 1 to 2, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Think about this. It's as though, let's say, let's put me, let's say I mess up. I commit some egregious sin. And so Jesus is standing before the Father, and he says, yep, God, Joel really screwed up. He messed up. He sinned big time. But I have covered his sin with my blood. And what's more, he has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, convicting him of sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. So the Spirit is working on him. But the other thing, he's also a part of that little group of believers at Poolsville Baptist Church. And those guys are going to come and nudge him and say, hey, Joel, dummy, get it right. Stop doing that. 
And so we have this advocate before the Father saying, no, he's part of the body of Christ. Help him to walk. I'm, we're working together. We, he, the, the body, the spirit, everybody is working together to help him represent you, God, better. So not only do we get to have this true freedom because of Jesus' position as the son, but finally we get to have this true freedom because of his nature as divine. If we think back to this passage, there's a lot of verses that we have left out. And and essentially, there's a lot of back and forth. And rather than reading it all for the sake of time, let me just summarize it. Because basically, they're calling Jesus' names, and he is retorting and saying no, and he's, he's... you know, defending himself. And at one point in time, near the end of this passage in John 8, 48 to 58, near the end, Jesus talks about the fact that Abraham, the guy that they were so excited about, he says, Abraham looked forward to my day, looked forward to me coming. And they say, well, you're not even 50 years old. How can you know all that? Let's look at the very last verse. John 8, 58, he says, Jesus answered them and said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. Before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, in our English ears, we think, we think of that as Jesus. That doesn't make sense. I am. That's in the wrong place grammatically. It doesn't make sense. But for those guys, for those Jewish listeners, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Because that phrase, I am, is the very same phrase God told Moses to call him. When, when Moses asked him, he said, well, well, God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is the name that I shall say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell them, say to this people, I am has sent you. And it's, so essentially, I mean, that phrase, that word essentially means God is. He is the self-existent one. He is the one who was and is and always will be. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he's telling them, I am God. I am divine. And so as it pertains to our freedom, not only does Jesus have the authority as the son to provide forgiveness, but because he is divine, he himself is the the only one who is able to fully atone for our sins. He is able to seal that freedom, that eternal freedom forever for us. He's fully human, born just like you and I are, but he's also fully divine fully God, able to save us from under the law because he is perfect. And so when he speaks of true freedom, he isn't simply making things up. Jesus has the authority as the son to declare freedom. And he has the ability as God to to ensure that freedom. So as we close our time together, I think it's important for us to just reflect on a couple things very briefly. One is that if we say we are Jesus' disciples, then we need to make sure that we're spending time with him. Spend time in his word. Spend time listening to his teaching. Spend time reading and praying and meditating and then living out what the word says. 
And when his teaching convicts us of painful truth, of sin that still needs to be rooted out, then we need to repent, confess that. And not try to rationalize, oh, that, that's old and antiquated. That's not what that means. <laughs> a lot of times when the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you need to fix this. There's a reason he's saying you need to fix it. Not so you can reinterpret scripture in a different way. But you can reinterpret you in his way. But also, I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, spend time with Jesus. Spend time reading his word. Let his teaching inform and impact you. And there will be some times when you will face painful and sobering truths. And yet that's a good thing. Because ultimately, we need that truth to confront us when we're living a lie. And let me encourage you, when you do face that truth, especially of your body, to sin and your sinful heritage. Repent of that. Trust in what Jesus did. Trust in what he has made available to you if you would only receive it. And let him make you eternally free. And for all of us, I think we get to walk in the confidence that Jesus has the nature and the authority to accomplish exactly what he needs to do in us if we would simply abide and remain and obey him. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for, for this time, for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to spend time with you, to have a desire to understand you and your ways, that we might live the lives that you've called us to. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.